Hello and welcome back to LD Disrupt Live, the podcast that's powered by How Now. This week's episode is all about the brain and LD. And I'm joined by Lauren Waldman, who you might know as the Learning Pirate, for a no BS chat about learning science. We discuss issues like what learning science really means in practice, why LD's mindset and perception of themselves matters, the foundations for behavior change the importance of collaboration when it comes to learning science and designing learning with the brain in mind. If you're not already following Lauren, I would highly recommend using the link in the description to connect because she's putting out some of the best content about learning science, the brain and LND and other great topics all about learning. A final reminder to subscribe if you haven't already because we've got some great conversations and guests coming up including a chat with High Bob's Winnie Amoaku about the relationship between HR and L&D, an episode all about advice for solo and small L&D teams, conversations about the big HR and L&D trends for 2024, and much, much more. But that's it from me. So here's my conversation with the wonderful Lauren Waldman. But before we get into all of that, Lauren, it'd be cool for people to hear who you are, what it is you do, what your background is. Oh man. Okay. Um, well, I'm Lauren. Uh, most people know. Yeah. I don't even have a name anymore. I don't think in the industry, it's just the pirate, the pirates now here. I, that's cool. If you know me as the learning pirate or the, the brand, I'm happy with that. Uh, but as Gary said, I've uh, been in the industry for a very long time and came in, uh, to the sciences of, um, almost a decade ago now. So it's basically this amazing journey of learning myself, which is why those of you who've heard me speak before know how utterly passionate I am about getting the accurate information out to us. As a scientist now, I've been donned with that title and certified, you know, triple certified now in neuroscience, which is even crazy for me to say, because man, was that some hard learning. We can talk about how hard learning is when we get to the conversation. So yeah, I just kind of now sit between a practitioner in our industry as, you know, former CLO and, and as a scientist and as a science translator. Perfect. Yeah, how long actually does it take to do? Obviously, you said triple certified. How long was the last uh, sort of degree that you did in in learning science? Um, on average, because I spaced them out, uh, so it was you know two every year and a half to two years. So we're talking about like maybe I'll study the first one was just over a year, the second one was just under a year, the third one took me I spaced it out under under two years. Um, so it's a lot, and in between, you're you're just reading and researching and and trying you trying to keep up, which you should just never even bother trying to keep up with all the research that comes out. Well, just follow someone like yourself who can. Like, just <laughs> done all the hard that. work, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> perfect. So let, let's get into this first question. I guess for a typical organization, what does learning science actually mean, and what does using it in practice actually look like? You know, there's very few organizations that are are doing it. And I think that's that's kind of why we're having this discussion today is how do we we get it in, into the organizations? What it can look like, I think, even though we're going to talk a lot about learning as we're as we're going through this hour together, I think what really profoundly hit me was even when I started to study and, and start diving into the brain and the science itself, you start to realize that yes, it's about being better at your profession. And yes, it's about learning. But at the at the end of the day, it's about us learning about us as fundamental human beings and what that means to be an operational fundamental human being and how we can work better with our systems once we know more about that. So 
when we then throw that into an organizational context, you know, over the past four or five years, especially during the pandemic, we had work, workplace well-being, we had psychological safety, this all comes into play. So it really comes down to, and I can, you know, I, I can ask everyone who's on this call and you can just drop your answers in the chat. Um, maybe some of you will say no, but if you had the chance, or if I gave you the pages to the operational manual of your brain, like, would you want to take a look? Would you want to see how things worked under there? Yes. I, I, okay. Gary's a hard yes. Kevin's like a hell no. <laughs> and we're not getting into the, like the gory gooey, like, you know, blood and whatnot. This is just like, Hey, this area of my brain does this. And if I know that it does that, then I can do this with it. Hmm. Yes. An executive summary, Pierce. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I see a little bit of this in. Do you know much about the Whoop band? But it's like that band that you wear that essentially measures things like your sleep and your performance. And then it, the app tells you the things that you did on that day that lead to that. And I think like more people are becoming interested in those things. Like, how do I optimize performance? But it's more about the things I do across the day or the actions I take over time, isn't it? Yeah, but even, you know, I've had so many conversations, even just in these last couple of weeks where, you know, I meet, I meet neuroscientists and, um, I ask them like, wow, how do you go through your day? They know, they know so much more about specific things than I do. I'm like, how do you go through your day knowing this much about our brains? Like, it's just, you know, we see things differently. We look at people differently. We probably articulate ourselves differently. Um, but if we were to follow every bit of science that came out to a T, it's maddening, you know, because, you know, and for anyone who's a fan of the the Huberman Lab uh, podcast, you know, I love Andrew. He's a phenomenal researcher, a phenomenal scientist, a great translator, but I swear in, so, in small ways, he's ruining my life. <laughs> it's like, I have to wake up at the same time, got to go to sleep at the same time. I yeah. can, I have to look at uh, daylight exposure within the first, you know, hour of me being up, but it's got to be at least 10 minutes. But if it's overcast, I have to be out there for 30 minutes. Don't drink caffeine within the first 12. I'm like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. I give up. <laughs> Sometimes it's too many, isn't it? I think that's part of what we're yeah. looking at today. It's like, what is actually practical versus what is too aspirational or would it require too much focus on these small minutiae, I guess? Well, when we're focusing on L&D, we're looking at very specifics, right? So we're looking at, let's talk about some foundational, if we understand foundational knowledge about the brain. And when I say foundational, we're talking very basics. Like, what is a memory? How does one encode such memories? Are there different memories? Um, for all of my my designers out there, if you're responsible for designing learning, knowing these things is just going to take your ability to design to crazy levels because all of a sudden we're now understanding how does attention work and how does focus work and how when I'm designing, do I have to take these things into consideration? Um, you know, when we go into the psychologies and we look at the methodologies from that as well. I think a lot of the people on this call, you'll be familiar with the terminology. We'll talk about spaced, you know, spacing out your learning or spaced repetition or interleaving, semantic encoding. But where are you using it? How are you using it? And when are you using it? That's where the science comes in. No, that makes sense. I know we're going to get to some of the more practical things a little bit later, but I guess, like you said, we're foundational. There's a few things it's worth us discussing maybe before we get to that. And one mm -hmm. of them is, Obviously, we're talking not just about learning science, but we're talking about learning and the brain in a wider context. And last time we spoke, you shared this interesting research on how L&D per perceived themselves and believe they're perceived in the business within their Thanks. brains. 
And is that biggest brain battle or first hurdle actually happening in the minds of L&D pros as opposed to practically using learning science in their role? Well, I mean, the the first bit of, of sort of data collection that I did was in preparation for, for another conference talk that I was doing. And I was just generally curious. Um, so I went on to one of the largest groups on LinkedIn. Um, it's the, you can look it up. I, and the, the survey is still there. It's learning education and training professionals group. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's probably over 600,000 people in that group. And the question that I asked was, you know, how is learning and development or how is the, the learning and development function perceived in your organization? And over a thousand people responded to this, which is a fair amount of data. And what was, you know, upsetting about it was, you know, we had the majority of the people were like, yeah, we're a valuable necessity. But the other options were were highly misunderstood and were an obligation versus a desire. And that, those numbers were were not far behind. Yeah, we're a valuable necessity. But then when you go in and you start to read the comments, that's when it kind of got a little bit more like, oh, this is how we see ourselves. But it's nothing that we all haven't had conversations with, with each other in the back end. You know, we're not we're not valued enough. Um, we're under resourced. We're deprioritized. Um, we're fighting for to show our existence. And then when you look further down in the comments of that, um, it would you know you see like my whole team was let go. My whole team was made redundant within an, within a day. Like yeah, mine too. This is very short sighted thinking. So from our perspective of we feel like we've got this immense amount of value, but we we we're just not proving it enough, or we're not being given the opportunity to prove it enough. So that was a little bit harsh for for me to see, but then for me to present it to a room full of SVPs and CLOs, it's like, if that's what we're saying about ourselves, what is the rest of the organization saying about us? So it was really, it was really eye-opening. I was going to say, what was the sort of reaction from people when you, you kind of made that point that if you're perceiving yourselves as something that, you know, could be, you know, like dispensable is maybe not the right word, but, um, Mm is potentially a burden or misunderstood. What was the sort of reaction to that? Well, it was interesting because in the moment or, you know, it occurred to me that there was going to be a lot of like emotional reactivity to that. And I just asked everyone, I'm like, are you, are you feeling something right now? Like, did you feel like a sense of dread or is your heart rate accelerating? Is your, you know, is your anxiety slowly creeping up? And and the response across the room was yes. And, you know, whether, whether we like to see it or not, I mean, for those of you who are on, on this call right now, you know, we've seen we've seen what happens on LinkedIn on a week to week basis. It has it slowed down a little bit, but we were seeing probably for like a good month or two, Gary, right before we spoke for the first time, teams were being eliminated like crazy. And you could see it whether it was a post about, yeah, my team got let go, or it was more people putting up posts saying, Hey, I just got let go, or my team was made redundant. I'm looking for work if anyone can help. We we started to see a lot of that. So you know, go if we if we are able to bring science into an organization from a level of human value, and then let's talk it. Let's then let's increase our abilities to learn, and then let's increase our abilities to design learning, and and increase the overall value of what we produce as learning and development professionals. Okay, now we've got something that we can really work with. Yeah, it sounds like part of it is a reframing in our own heads about like how we approach it, what our role is. I guess is that part of it as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. But it takes it takes us to learn first. Like it that's that's what it just comes down to, right? And I think everybody, you know, again, back end conversations that I'm now bringing up very much forward is that how are we supposed to 
upskill. And, you know, we hear these words all the time now, upskill, 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 but like who's upskilling the learning teams? <laughs> We're upskilling everybody else, but who's, a, how are we getting the time and the money and, and the space to do it outside of, you know, oh, you can go to a conference for a day or, oh, here's, here's $50 for, for a book. And I'm not saying that all organizations do this, but if that survey shows us anything, it shows that there's a greater amount of people who would love to show more value, who would love to learn themselves, but they're not giving the space, the time and the budget. Yeah, exactly. I think it's when times are hard, it becomes the default, isn't it? To play the safe option and say, maybe go to this course or do this thing. You made a great point there about upskilling, which leads us nicely onto a LinkedIn post you shared recently, what I will add in the show notes and the email I send out to everyone after. But it was about put uh, stopping putting the cart before the horse mm. in the sense of trying to drive behavior change without knowing if people have the tools and the skills to achieve behavior change first. So tell us mm. a bit more about that. Yeah. And I think this was, this was sparked. It, there was a couple of posts that I put up and, and this is kind of a big message I've been speaking about recently is in an organization or just like in, in school and life, we were never taught these things. No one ever taught us about our brains. No, no one ever taught us like very fundamental things, but well, how do I cultivate a habit? You know, how, what is the behavior? How does that come into all of this? And the expectations that we're seeing from people are, well, we want you to do this. We want to adapt this new culture in our organization, or we would like to see a behavioral change across a whole organization without even thinking, do people even understand or have the, the skills to do that? Now, when we harmonize things like the science of it, right? Because as much as our brains work with us, they also work against us. And it's so valuable to know how our brains can work against us um, in situations when we're trying to cultivate a new habit or behavior. So if we taught those things first, those underlying skills that would then make us successful in cultivating a new behavior, because now we're consciously aware of what could work against us. Well, that seems like it's a good place to start. And it's the same with learning. It's not that we don't know how to learn. We all know how to learn. Well, we could definitely be learning better. We have so much more information on the science of it, how our brains work, about methodology and theories, but we're not using it. We're not taking the time to learn those, which would help us succeed in so many ever, you know, other aspects and are not only our professional lives, but definitely our personal ones. Yeah. One example that came to my mind when I first saw your post was that one about the feedback culture. So if people say that they want a better feedback culture or they want to give better feedback, often the gut reaction is to send out more surveys. But then if people don't have the fundamental principles or, or ability to give clear, concise feedback or accept feedback openly, then all you do is just try and solve the problem by doing more. And it's the same with upskilling. If people don't have the the mindset or understand the behavior of upskilling, then just hitting them with a load of content also doesn't help, does it? So how can we kind of put these better foundations in place? Um, to, to ensure that we're not just doing more to try and solve something. Instead, we're we're trying to put a good base layer and also use some of that learning science about the brain. You know, when I started in on all of this, like at the time when I started when my first when I first started looking into neuroscience and started sort of my own studies and you know at the time it was a CLO or like CLO wasn't even a word back then. <laughs> like, it just wasn't. I was ahead of learning. Um and when I realized how hard it was 
And then I was like, oh my God, like the learning journey itself to learn about neuro and the brain and then to sort of like start making correlations between what we do as practitioners. I mean, it was exceptionally hard. But then to go back to everyone else and say, ooh, here's my white flag and I'm waving it too, right? And I, I think I've said this so many times and I'm not telling people that they're doing it wrong because if it was doing it wrong, then I was doing it wrong the whole time too. But we just need to be doing it better. Like just a little bit better. So to get into these principles and to get under under the skin of things, I mean, Gary, you said, you said feedback, right? I mean, <laughs> when it comes to the feedback stuff, it's you can do your survey stuff, but what happens when you're in person? And I've talked to talked to organizations about this when they're doing those soft skills and the feedback and whatnot. So what happens when someone's having like a really bad day and you're face-to-face with them? And they are very, you don't even know it. You can't see it, but they might be, you know, immensely emotionally sensitive at the time. So, you know, are we taking those things into consideration? But then what about yourself? So now we're looking at things like we've got emotional regulation versus cognitive function, right? If I'm starting to feel something, right? Emotions are the chemical responses happening in our brains. The feelings are those tangible experiences that are happening because of what's happening in our brains. But if I can start to feel my heart rate's accelerating, my hands are getting sweaty, I'm starting to get a little bit anxious. How do I downregulate that so I can have a proper conversation with you? Because sometimes feedback's like, and some people love feedback. They take it well. That's not a problem. But again, what if we did teach people those underlying human things that would help us to listen to each other a little bit better. I'm not talking active listening. I'm talking about the those reactions again, those things that we can't see, but that we can definitely, we can't like, you know, I don't like to say control because I feel like we, we don't necessarily take control of the brain. And that's why I say we join forces with it. We learn to work with it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some of the small actions are like asking people if this is a good time to give or receive feedback, like setting these things as the cultural, um, so that you can, I guess, like you said, sometimes our brain works against us. And if it is, that might dictate that it's not the right environment or the right moment to do a particular thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm interested to hear like what people have to say in, in the chat about these things too. You know, it's like, I look back at everything that I've learned in, in the past decade and, and then I see, kids who are starting to learn these things from a young age now. Thank goodness. Right. And I was like, wow, if I would have known, well, how would I have been different as, as, you know, as me, if I would have known these things when I was growing up and someone have taught me a little bit and they're starting to in schools, but like just a little bit about my brain, a little bit what it means when, you know, I, I describe it to the kids as like you're Amy and you're Corey. Amy is your amygdala. That's your emotional processing center. And Corey is your executive function. So what would happen if I would have known about these things when I was growing up and how that would have changed me. Yeah. No, it's true. I was um reading that book. I can't remember the the lady's name, but it's about why has no one told me that before? And it's all about how the brain works. I'm not sure if you've read this. I think she's a psychologist. But there's a thing right at the start of the book and it's about how emotions start. And it will be like four things influence each other, like action, mood, environment. There's all these things that all are working together, aren't they? And one of them is the trigger point that forces everything else into action. Mm-hmm. I think is the gist of what the, the it says at the start of the book. It reminds me of that movie Inside Out. <laughs> oh, Ben's coming with Julie, Julie Smith. Inside Out? Oh, Inside Out's great. Anyone else in the chat seen Inside Out? I had such a great nice. idea. Yeah, I had such a great idea. Ben comes in with a yes for Inside Out. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, actually, before I forget, about the ways our brain works against us, because I don't know if anyone can relate. I definitely know my brain is working against me, but how? How is it doing it sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Are there any big ones to keep an eye on? 
There's so many. Um, you know, I think the one that's probably the most relevant to 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 us in the, in this room today is when it comes to to learning and when we're trying to learn something new or we're trying to help somebody else learn something new. And the the best example I can give is this organization that brought me in um, to to help them with this new initiative that they had. And they got, we have a new shared purpose. I'm like, and they're like, we need to tell everybody about our new shared purpose. I'm like, this is amazing. Great. I'm like, show me what you've got. And I said, show me the old purpose. Like what, what was the baseline? And I looked at both of them. I'm like, how is this different? It was so minutely different. Right. And I said to them, well, you know, the brain is always going to go back to the thing that it's most familiar with. And it's a big challenge for us because it's always going to revert back. And so <laughs> even in, in that, knowing that we're always going to revert back to what we're comfortable with, it becomes a bigger challenge for us in the learning field to then how do we design the learning and how do we facilitate the learning to distinguish those things, knowing that that person's brain is going to keep going, no, come back over here. Come on, come back over here, right? Like, come on. <laughs> so that's like one very, like, you know, that's one small example um, of how, you know, it works against us. In the series, we talk about schematics and this is also um, how the brain organizes information, right? So if you already have a conceptual idea of what something is and it fits very beautifully into this neural network of, of organizations that you've like, no, this is how it fits in. Again, it, it's very challenging to go in a different pathway. One thing you made me think about there is how we measure interventions or learning experiences, because often I think one thing we don't measure or consider is how many people, if the outcome is behavior change, just did the old behavior versus how many people did it. Like I've seen this a lot with maybe like sales teams when a process changes or the pitching changes, it's comfortable to revert to the thing you know, because it does feel so easy to memorize. You're, you're in a good rhythm, but then how many times are people testing out the new one versus reverting to the old one? And then how do we, do we then say this one didn't work, but actually there wasn't a fair sample size of people testing yeah. it because their comfort was there to revert to the old way of doing it. Does, does that make sense? It does, but I think we're we completely underestimate. And uh, you know, I'm gonna be um pitching for for a piece of business on Thursday. And it's just it's funny because like part of the conversations are, you know, well they want to go every, everything learning is like we wanted it yesterday. We want to see changes in a month. I'm like, um <laughs> let me show you a human brain. Let me show you how long it takes to build one dendrite, one if you don't have it yet, in a human brain, right? It's like, you know, and it, we can equate it as very simply to do you go to the gym, pick up a weight, and boom, <laughs> like look at my biceps, of which I have none right now. <laughs> it's, it doesn't work like that. So when we think, you know, previous research would say between six and eight weeks to form a strong new neural network, which could represent a behavior, which could represent a new habit, which could represent a new pathway of knowledge, minimum, but you wanted it yesterday and then tomorrow. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if how many people would relate to this in the chat, but the idea of getting buy-in often in companies, there's an expectation that you can drive these things quickly. So would having some of this evidence about how long behavior change takes or new habit forming takes or how long it takes to digest information and how many times you need to apply it for it to stick, would having some of that evidence there help you make a better case for managing expectations about how quickly you can drive change as well? You know, I mean, I'm going to, Gary, I want to ask everybody who's listening to this, who's got their hands over their keyboards right now. I'm like, what's your instinctual answer to that? If we show people evidence, do they actually do anything? 
Yeah, that's the challenge, isn't it? I suppose. I, Penny, Penny, I literally just watched you roll your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Penny can relate. <laughs> and, I, and I love you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, we all know it's a not really. I think this is why when I do have those opportunities to have the conversations, we can present all of the information in the world, but why don't I prove it to you? Why don't I activate your own brain and, you know, and show you why you may or may not be able to do something. You know, I've given the example of the juggling so many times, walk into a room with your stakeholders, hand, hand the most difficult one, the three objects and be like, juggle. I'm like, no, I can't juggle. Cool. I'll be back tomorrow when you can juggle. Right. <laughs> but this is what you expect of other people. There's a great follow-up um, comment from Ben in the chat actually about showing people evidence. They only listen if it confirms their worldview. So how, mm. I guess this falls into the category of learning in the brain, but challenging perceptions in the right way so that if people don't, for example, see the value in learning and they're looking for confirmation bias, are there ways you can kind of unpick that so that you can make a better case? Contextualized is something that is relevant to them. That's what it always comes down to. And that requires a little bit more of a personal conversation or, you know, just finding out, you know, we're always, we're always told to find out what the problem is, find, find, find out what the pain point is. But when we're constantly just in the environment of speaking about it from a business lens and not a human lens, then we need to get out of one modality and into the next in order to come back. So I would say contextually see if you can, you can find something that like, and we, we all have, I, I use the example in the series and I just, I still do this. I did it this morning. I was looking for my sunglasses and they were sitting on my, they were just sitting on my jacket. It's like, I was wearing them running around the house frantically because I was trying to get out the door and I was like, oh, okay, stop, downregulate, breathe, allow my brain to focus, get that neurochemistry, you know, pumping through me. Okay person who has all the decision-making power, does, does this ever happen to you? <laughs> you know, what's some like wonderful epic mistake that you've made when you just haven't been paying attention? You know, did you lock your keys in the car once? I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> did you get on yeah. the wrong train and go the other way? Done that too. <laughs> that. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I think um, loads of good comments in the chat reinforcing that, that have to make it relatable, have to make it fit the context. I guess the other thing is at the end of the day, people only really care about whether it solves the problem for them or mm. reduces pain for them, I guess. So um, yeah, that's kind of the mindset to combine these things with that real understanding of what the problem is for someone. Try and solve it, I guess. Well, we can talk to that though, because when we, you know, I know there's always a lot of problems of like, well, how do we prove ROI and L and D and whatnot? Well, let's we'll speak to what the stakeholders really care about. Are people making money for them? Are you saving time? Are you, you know, acquiring more customers? Like, what is that? What does your scorecard look like? Is what it comes down to. But how useful is it? You know, we can use the sales team as an example. A sales team who needs to sell a new car, and you know, there's new details to this car. I'm so not a car person, by the way. So <laughs> I'm just going to make this up as I go. Uh, you know, they need to sell something new, and they need to understand what are the new functions of the car. You know, everything about the details of the of this car. Well, how are we going to how are we going to teach this to them? Right. First of all, they already know other models and brands, so we know that it's or sorry within their own organization, so it's working against them. Um, we have to design out a program that allows them to uh, to use that information in a contextual relevant relevant way. And it's just how quickly do people actually learn versus how quickly you want them to learn. And if we take it back to, I don't know, I don't know if anyone of uh, anyone who's who's live with us right now 
who do you ride bikes? Anyone in the chat? Do you ride a bike? Do you remember learning how to ride a bike? Yes. I'm still not very good at riding the bike even now, but I remember that. Right? Like, did you just get on that bike and like go? Because if there's any of you in the, in the audience, I would love to hear that story, but you know, or parallel parking when we were teenagers and learning to drive, because that wasn't horrible, <laughs> you know, reverse, reversing with like white, you know, these all, these all take time. But the problem is, and whether it's the sales car, the sales and learning about the cars or learning to ride a bike, the example, when we take it into an organizational context is we can learn it and learn our strategies and learn how to learn better or, and yes, does that take a little bit more time up front? Yes, it does. However, how much more time is going to be wasted when someone doesn't learn something, doesn't want to tell you that they haven't learned something and will waste their time Googling, YouTubing, TikToking, Instagramming, like trying to find answers somewhere else because they just didn't learn it. That's an exceptional amount of time wasted. So why not, instead of that, if learning is going to be designed, in the, if, if the learning being designed is going to be crap, can we at least give people the skills to learn better so that they can discern? <laughs> okay, what do I know? What don't I know? What do I think I know? I saw somewhere in the chat, someone was asking about how to... Um, how to teach adults about metacognition without being, I think it's condescending. I don't want to scroll back yeah. up again. No, that's right. That's, that's it. You design it in without them even knowing. And this is the brilliance about scientific learning design. Absolute brilliance of it is that we can take the theory of metacognition and we can break it down and we can design in these elements where within the design, we're not allowing someone to get to the end and then realize when they try to transfer, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Take this into a meeting room, right? You, you're in a meeting for like an hour, an hour and a half. And at the end of the meeting, okay, everyone knows what they're doing. We're good. Great. Okay, go team. Everyone walks out and you go and find your friend and you're like, hey, Gary, what was that thing I was supposed to be doing? Again, I wasn't really paying attention. If you use the theory in your meeting, then 10 minutes before everyone leaves and you just pose a question. Hey, Gary, I told you that I needed you to go ride a bicycle up to the shops um, and grab me some milk. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I didn't say that, actually. What do you know? What don't you know? What do you think you know, right? And we can use this in our own learning, but for the design of learning as well to Mm -hmm. ensure that when we're talking about ROI, and you can feel free, everyone, to use that example, is would you rather have a bunch of time wasted on people trying to look up things that they didn't learn properly in the first place, or would you like them to learn it properly in the first place? Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to change topics slightly about why it's so crucial for L&D pros to spend time learning about how the brain functions and about how we learn. Because there's one other good LinkedIn post I'll pop in the post episode email as well. But you discussed some of the benefits of creating a more intentional way of learning, like better focus, better understanding of your own cognitive efforts, building that growth mindset. It feels like understanding how the brain works links to so many of these things we hear people talking about all the time, like a growth culture, continuous learning culture. And you also mentioned that often people don't see the correlation to the performance or ROI. So yeah, why is it, it, I guess maybe just break that down for us a bit, how important it is that we spend time working out how the brain works. Can I just ask everybody, like, just make a comment on this for me right now? Because do we hear how ridiculous even asking this question is? Why should L&D people be learning about learning? Does anyone else think that's ridiculous? And yet this is the, con- this is the conversation. I would really yeah. love to hear what you guys think about this one. <laughs> because these are the conversations that I'm having all the time is, 
I need to defend why as a learning practitioner, we should be upskilling ourselves and learning who sees the problem with this. Um, I'm just going to throw that out and everyone can, can just sort of put their thoughts in, in the chat on that one. Why though? Okay. Fundamental human, it's almost everything that we've been talking about, Gary. It's take the learning part away from it. And let's say that we're just learning about ourselves as fundamental human beings. What if I understood that when I am stressed out or I'm feeling these moments of anxiety, or I see that I have a presentation to do or a proposal and I've got the clock ticking against me. But what if I know that I'm going to emotionally react four times faster than I will logically act? What does that mean now to the way that I can perform and show up in my work and as a human being? Well, okay, well, that means that I'm going to get emotional quicker. Well, what can I do about it? Oh, well, I know these techniques where I, where it be through breath work or through change of environment or through a havening technique that I can now harness that. And that to me is incredibly powerful as a fundamental human being, but then also I can get back to work. I can get back to work and be more productive. Why do I care about attention? Well, because if my attention split, I'm not focusing. So for me to be able to have those moments of conscious awareness in, you know, being, you know, let's call it going meta and in the moment go, Lauren, you're not paying attention. Like you're supposed to be paying attention to this thing on your screen or, you know, you're supposed to be paying attention to the webinar that you're on right now, but you're thinking about what you want to have for lunch or you've got a tab open because you forgot to like, you know, check out your Amazon cart. And in that moment go, oh, you ain't paying attention. Then I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to stop what I'm doing because why push myself? We talk about how we work against the brain. This is another example of how we work against it. Why push myself into a state that I'm not in yet? We, you know, give myself a chance to like step away and come back in and warm up again. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you maybe think of two things there. One is something I do myself is ask myself if this is a good time. Like you say, if I'm going to be, especially if it's giving feedback, if I'm in an emotional state, I might as well wait until the next day when I'm more likely to approach it more rationally. And a couple of times I've seen people at the start of courses or learning experiences added in an exercise that's either, like you said, to do a breathing, staring at a spot to try and prime the brain. So like those are quite small things that could actually have a big impact. Like if I just yeah. put at the start of a survey, because actually we had a survey last week when I was in a bad mood, get sent out and I was like, you know what, answer <laughs> tomorrow or else I'll be, <laughs> I won't be rational about it. So those are little small things I guess maybe people could do, isn't it? Just preface this yeah. piece of learning with like an exercise that helps you prime the brain. Or if it is a survey, just put a note at the start, like, if this is a bad, if you know, if you feel like you'll answer this better later, then do it later. This is the deadline, maybe. Yeah. I mean, even in the series, like, you know, the series that, that I created, it has those moments in there. And I'm even, I think at one point I say, I'm like, if you don't feel like doing this anymore, if you've had enough, step away, go away. You know, when was the last time you did an online learning and someone's like, go away, go have a drink or like, go take yeah. a nap? <laughs> it's, it's giving people permission, but it's also cultivating the skill at the same time. Because I think what, what the biggest challenge is when it comes to getting learning sciences and, you know, brain sciences, not only into our organizations, but into our educational systems is that because our behaviors and our habits are so strong because they've been cultivated over decades and centuries worth of an educational system that really has maintained a steady course for, for hundreds of years. And that's how we were all brought up for the most part in our, in our learning. So all of those habits and behaviors are incredibly strong. And 
if this gives you any context of how much further we still have to go, I, I can't mention who, but I can I can say from where I was. I had the the very random honor of meeting a, a uh, an astronaut, like a real one, a NASA one, like very very cool. Like I like my nerd dream just came true, and I was dying to know. I'm like astronauts have to go through an exceptional amount of training, and they learn ridiculous amounts under crazy conditions, and not in a long period of time too. And I was dying to know, I'm like, what were your learning strategies? A NASA astronaut. And in front of an auditorium full of people, she's like, well, you know, I read and I highlight and I make notes. And I just turned to the colleague beside me. I go, did she just say in front of a room, did a NASA astronaut just, I'm like, wow. Oh, oh my God. And I found this, uh, I found her afterwards. I said, Hey, is that your real answer? <laughs> were you just trying to be like nice and conservative? She's like, no, oh, that was my real answer. And I was like, we should talk. We should talk. <laughs> it's the never meet your heroes thing, isn't it? Like you, you're it was crazy. Yeah. I was like, you know, you meet someone from NASA, and you're like, do I give up now? <laughs> Is there no hope? <laughs> or, or do we, or do we realize that like we've got a lot, to, a lot to do? But I think that I want to hope, and maybe everyone can sort of either confirm, confirm my belief that we are looking at a stronger wave of momentum. I think people are starting to take these things a lot more seriously. Yeah. No, I mean, we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're doing doing our part. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about there. Actually, you mentioned about permission. Like, if uh, I've I've done courses before where it's like ten modules, and four modules in, I've learned the thing I needed to learn, and yet I finished the other six out of some sort of obligation. And it made me think that actually, the same thing's probably happening in companies where people just need that permission to say like once you've learned the thing you needed to learn from this just check out of it because your attention is limited um if you spend an extra half an hour on this and gain nothing from it then nobody wins like the productivity isn't there you could spend that time somewhere else doesn't maybe think make you think that learning is as useful as it could be in my company because half of the session was useless and i learned what i needed in the first 20 minutes so is that also mm -hmm. like a tip that that people could just apply is just give people permission to check out of a learning experience if the time's not right or they've learned what they needed to. I will say only once they have cultivated the skill of metacognitive ability so that they don't leave there thinking, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it, and then try to transfer it and be like, oh, I didn't know it. Because that's, that's part of the theory as well, right? We 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 definitely we get overconfident in our abilities, or we you know we either over get overconfident or we doubt. So if we don't have the means to test ourselves and the methodologies to check in on that before we are we're like go to you know work or try something, and think about like there's very critical environments that you cannot mess around in. I once did a design for um, a distribution warehouse center for. Uh, I guess it was it TK Max in the UK. It's like yes. TJ Max. I don't know. It's like it's it's all sorts of Maxes all over the world, and those are really intimidating environments because they're like football fields long, and you've got all sorts of things happening. You've got production lines going. You've got trucks coming in and out. You've got like it's really going quite quickly. Now I would want someone to feel confident that they had learned what they needed to learn before they get out onto that floor and potentially could get really damaged, like damaged as a human being, like you get hurt in those environments. So I would say if you are consciously aware and can test yourself and know to test yourself before you're, you know, you check out entirely, then absolutely. I would say why, if you, if you know it, move on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I realized the two flaws in what I said there after I said it. But one is uh, I can assume that I know something and it's a false assumption. And like you said, there's not the, it's not happened to the point where I could go and apply it effectively. I just presume that there's not more to learn. So yeah, I guess, guess it shows how tricky that, um, that balance is. Uh, I've got one more question for you, Lauren, and then I want to take some questions from the audience. So um, just a reminder that if you have any questions, drop them in the chat now. Basically, you said a little bit about this at the start, but designing your learning experiences and interventions with the brain in mind. So I just wonder if there are any general tips or best practices you could share with people for ensuring they're designing something that does work with the brain rather than against the brain. So there's so many, but I think because we've talked a little bit about attention and focus here, and I'm going to sound like a broken record to some of you. Penny, I know you're going to know this. You could probably tell tell everybody. Um, Is is that sort of understanding of attention being the mechanism to focus. And because there are so many attentional networks in the brain, when you are designing learning, you have to be very consciously aware of how am I helping guide someone's attention to focus? So look at what it is that you're designing and put yourself in that person's shoes as we we all have to do when we're designing learning for somebody else is what are they really needing to do in this moment in time. If the brain has all of these different resources and I want to utilize them to the best of the design ability, then what does that look like? You know, a lot of people who have seen presentations that I do, they're very simple. They're not flashy at all. They're black and white for the most part. And that's because I understand that the brain is processing everything on that screen. It's processing me. It's processing the words. It's processing the color of the words. It's color, you know, the the font of it, all of it. So how do I reduce that in order to really help somebody focus in? So that's like one of my biggest tips is attention is the mechanism to focus. How do you help someone guide their attention to focus on what they need to learn? Because remember, focus is also the gateway to learning. So that's like one really big high level one. And then, you know, we know that repetition and rehearsal is critical to forming a strong neural network and strong neural pathway in somebody's brain. But often we don't see enough of it in the design itself. And it can't just be as simple as like, I'm going to do an ABC multiple choice quiz at the end of, at the end of this module and boom, <laughs> practice. <laughs> no, we need so many more touch points. So how are you designing in to help somebody we can't do it for them. We can't change the structure of somebody's brain, but we can help them through our designs to be like, maybe we throw in a quiz or a test somewhere there, or we put in a practical application or anything that works in the context in which you're designing in. It can't be a one and done. It just can't, period. Yeah, I think that's the challenge, isn't it? Like um, people viewing it as a one-time thing. So we collect the feedback about, or we nudge people to apply it at the end of an experience. but there's not necessarily often that thought to continue doing it over time, which is what will, I guess, help cement it in people's minds. Definitely. Cool. I have a question from the chat from Olivia. If there's any um, organizational training project examples that you can share that you've been a part of that were successful, I guess, in the context of, of considering the learning science angle. Ah. Uh. Um, well, I actually, that's a great question, Olivia. Um, and I actually did wind up being on the team that designed out that TJ Maxx um, onboarding. It was for their supervisors. And it was so successful. And what made it successful was 
when I did the um, the needs analysis, when I was going around the organization, and I, you know, I think they weren't used to having some. Not many organizations are going to have a learning scientist come in and be like, "By the way," um, and to go to each of the different or uh, divisions within the organization and speak to each one of them individually and to hear the cross functionality of all of it. That was a big, big, big help, and I don't think they were used to it either. You know, typically a learning person will come in, they'll sit down with the ops people. Okay, tell me what's going on. Sit down with HR, tell me what's going on. But never then does it go to the point, I'll go back to the ops person and say, hey, I got some really great insights from HR about your function. And this is how I'm looking at designing it in. So that was like something that was a really big win. But when it came to the science, what they didn't take into consideration, which I was able to feed back to the leadership team, is when I spoke to people on the floor of the center itself. And I said, give me a variety of people to speak to. I don't want to talk to the person who's been here for 15 years. I want to speak to the person who's been here for three months. I want to speak to the person who literally just started like a week ago. And then I got that range. And it was the person who had been there for three months. I think she was there. And uh, we were having this conversation. I said, well, what kind of, what was really challenging for you when you first got here? Like, this is a crazy environment. It's kind of overwhelming and intimidating. And she said, I couldn't find the bathroom. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, and then what? And then I couldn't find the lunchroom. And think about that. She, she, so she had social anxiety. Think about your, you know, when you first went into high school, you know, you might not remember it exactly, but it's just like, oh my God, where's the bathroom? Like, where, like, you didn't want to be the person who looked lost all the time. Right. But beyond optics is she was so stressed and so occupied with the environment and try to be safe in the environment. There was no way she was going to be able to learn. So the big success there was in feeding that information back to them and saying, you're not teaching people the fundamental basics of how to feel safe and how to pay attention and how to focus in this particular environment. And because we were able to design a program that was not only looking at that safety, telling them, you know, if by any chance something goes wrong, you know, because there's a lot of loud noises that can jar you, right? And that can be a little like stop you in your tracks. If you do get scared and that emotional processing center in your brain is instantly triggered and you go into, you know, not um, fight mode, but maybe flight mode, like you want to run and get the heck out of there, that also could be dangerous. So let's downregulate. Let's teach you how to downregulate that so you can activate a more logical function so that you don't get hurt. It yeah. was a massive, massive success. They never thought about these things before, right? Yeah. I think part of that is assumptions, isn't it? just assuming the problem without, like you say, speaking to the person who maybe experiences the problem. And then the other thing is not understanding the things that trigger certain reactions in the brain or emotional responses. Like mm -hmm. I read in the latest Gallup, I can't remember what it's, I think it's called like workplace happiness report or something like that. But it's 44% um, of employees said that experienced stress a lot during the previous day. And <laughs> that was the highest it had ever been equal to last year. But I think a lot of companies are maybe overlooking that point. Like they'll go, here's the problem to solve. Here's the implement, like the intervention, but actually what's happening between there and people's brains in the environments that, that's dictating whether or not that intervention is a success and solves the problem we started out to solve, I guess. Oh my God. And think about on and the a different company, this one was great. And I, I won't say who it is because you'll all know them for sure. But they asked me to come in to do, to do a redesign of one of their onboarding programs. And I looked at it. First of all, it was ridiculously long. But then the first week when I looked at how they had chunked out, it was like three times a day, 
the new person was meeting somebody else new. I was like, here, meet Gary. Here, meet Penny. Here, meet Jane. Here, meet Lionel. I'm like, and then learn what Jane and Penny and Lionel and everybody does. And this went on for a solid week. I'm like, there's no way you're going to remember everybody and everything that they do and how they're related to you and your role. And it's like, space it out, space it out. Yeah, funny enough, I've seen it from the other end as well, where we went one of my old companies, there would be people that would join and then someone who led the team would do a talk about what that team does. <laughs> then someone else would start the next week and the same person has to give the same talk again about what their team does. And they're just on this perpetual cycle of having to give a talk to new people almost every week about what their team does. And I just think like that at the other end as well, isn't it? It's, are you... Why are you doing this? Is this actually helping the person who's delivering the the talk as well? Probably not. They've got stuff to do. They're stressed now. Their brain is in this like rushing around mode now as well, aren't they? Because they've got to go and do the same talk again in their busy day. Exactly. Exactly. It's not just about the person who who you're meeting. It's about the person, you know, the other person going, I've just met how many people you just occupied this much time in my calendar you know, they're not coming into it in the like in the welcome. Yeah. <laughs> welcome to our team and in our environment. And you know, not when not when those emotions have been triggered on both sides of the thing. And I guess part of it as well is how much are we doing things because they're the way they're always done by us or other companies and how much are we thinking about how our brain works? For example, to take that um explanation to its logical conclusion, if I meet 10 new people in one day, and getting people's name wrong makes me feel like a terrible person. And now <laughs> I've got to remember 10 new names every day. And then every time I try and speak to that person, I'm remembering, like trying to think, what does this person do? What's their name again? I should know this because I've met them. But in reality, I've met 30 people over three days. So is that part of it as well? When you go into companies and work with them, is it just about challenging? This is oh, the yeah. way things have always been done. And yeah. wouldn't it be better if you did it this way? So your brain was considered as part of the process. Absolutely. It's, it's like, you know, a lot of what I do is, is that educational piece because we don't know what we don't know. And I get it. The science, you come in, you're like, I'm going to teach you about your brains. And you go, ah, that sounds scary and horrible and intimidating and all the things. I'm like, no, nah, it's, it's just give us, a, give us a shot. You know, there's translators that exist like me for a reason. So like we said at the beginning of the hour, we don't expect everybody else to do the heavy lifting. We've done it for you but we're very underutilized. And I think if anything, that if you get out of this conversation and even just coming back to that one question that you asked earlier, which is like, you know, why should L&D be considering about learning in science and learning about their brains and learning? I'm like, come on, guys, come on. We are learning professionals. We should not even have to ask that question. Yeah, thinking as well, actually, about questions that probably shouldn't need to be asked. But I often see companies really interested in two things, productivity and well-being. And then often what they miss is this middle part of the brain. Like you said, if we're creating, giving people the tools maybe to go and get a better sleep, then their well-being is better. And also their performance is likely to be better. If we're maybe helping employees, I've, I've seen people discuss this in terms of diet, or like you say, building these routines, like in the morning that prep your brain for the day. They're not only good for people's well-being, they're also good for people's performance and productivity. So maybe that's also a space for it's a bit of a void, maybe that I see some people teams filling a bit, but maybe it's mm. a bit of a quick win. I think it's just, you know, we saw so much of that, you know, the well-being over the over the pandemic. But it's like again, we need to cultivate these habits. How do you cultivate the habit? 
if I want to wake up earlier, if I want to go for a run in the morning, which by the way, I never want to do. <laughs> Minus 30 in Toronto, I do not want to get out of bed and go for a run. Um, but if I if I did, I'd really have to cultivate that habit. But it's if we are able to monitor ourselves, yes, atomic habits. <laughs> um, if we are able to monitor and regulate ourselves, just as our everyday human being peoples, that translates into everything else that we do, professional, personal. All of it. No, that's true. I'm I'm struggling with these at the moment, forming these habits versus the old way taking over. Like I'm trying not to look at my phone for the last and first at least 30 minutes of the day. And oh, most of the I days. I love that. But I then, love that. My phone's not anywhere near me in my it's not in my room when I sleep. Yeah. Um it's usually like in a completely different on a different mm. floor. <laughs> yeah. No, on, yeah, if no one's tried that, that is honestly the biggest thing I think that had the best impact. I still sleep terribly. Um there's too many other variables, but this one at least helps a little bit in terms of um yeah, I'll read a book before I go to sleep then. I'm, my first reaction isn't to pick up my phone in the morning, so there's all these other um small benefits. Experiment. That's what I tell everybody. You know, choose yeah. one thing and don't don't put so much pressure on yourself. Just use it as an experiment. Like, can I do this? I don't like running. I don't like jogging. And I I, I wanted to see, could I just do it? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to just instantly get up, put on my sneakers and run 5K. That's not Lauren at all. But I was like, can I jog? Not even to the end of my street. I was like, you know how you've got like the sidewalk blocks? I'm like, can I just jog three of those? <laughs> like, I can do that. I can jog three of those, right? And then sort of like my motivation and my internal narrative goes like, oh, come on, Lauren, you can do three more of those. Um, now, just so you know, this experiment failed. I still don't jog. <laughs> but, but my motivation is very low. Yeah. But, yeah, no, but I could if I want. I could if I want to. I did teach yeah. myself how to juggle though, using science. Okay, <sighs> nice. Uh, it might be a nice note to end on, actually, because I just realized we're coming right to the end of time. But it's part of this as well, just to, like you say, be a bit kinder on yourself. Realize the brain is a mm. is a complex thing. You can always try and take the right actions, but it's easy to fall into old habits. It's yeah. more complex than just thinking I'll do it this way and then being able to follow through. Yeah. And please just remind, you know, besides just being like gentle with yourself, celebrate it as well celebrated as well. You know, I was teaching someone this yesterday in the car and she's like, blah, 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 blah. And she, and she had this moment. She's like, wait, but then I realized I was doing this. I'm like, great. The next time that you realize you're doing it, stop and be like, yes, go me. I do it all the time. Like, yeah, Lauren. Yes. Yes. You remembered not to eat that five, that fifth piece. You want to take that. Don't do it. Um, or, you know, it's, it's those things, but you have to sort of, again, part of training ourselves and training our brains and building those strong networks are recognizing and celebrating our successes. You know, and I do it just as much as I, you know, this morning, like I said, running around looking for my sunglasses that are just literally sitting on my chest. I'm like, Lauren, like I actually, like I reprimand myself too. <laughs> I'm like, come on. Yeah. yeah, it's easy to do that though, because you get so worked up. Like if you ever looked for your phone in your bag and it's in there, but you're, you're already in such a, a fluster that you, yeah. you can't find it. Perfect. Um, Lauren, just quickly as well, obviously you do a lot of um, courses and online content that people could really benefit from. So I don't know if you wanted to to explain a little bit about that before we wrap up as well. Um. Oh God, I hate the word course. I even say I that. I you shouldn't uh, have used that, yeah. <laughs> I know. So uh, <laughs> it's just been so bastardized. Um, joining forces with your brain. I think some of, some, I know some of you on this call have, have gone through the journey or you're still on the journey right now, um, but joining forces with your brain pretty much helps 
to encompass everything that we talked about in this last hour. It's a scientifically designed learning journey, um, which enhances your ability to learn, but it's teaching you all about those wonderful things that we've talked about. It's what's going on in your brain when, you know, you've got a little bit of stress happening. Why is stress good for us? Why is it bad for us? How do things organize in there? But the beauty of it being scientifically designed and using all of the method and the theory is that we're helping people to cultivate these skills as they go through the journey. So it's not like, hey, if you do this, you can you can focus better. No, we're going to give you experiments and we're going to practice so that you actually can over the course of time. So joining forces with your brain is, is I call it very lovingly, my symphony. And for my instructional designers out there who have looked at it or, or those who haven't seen it yet, who are going to take a look at the series, um, I can tell you it's about an hour and a half worth of content right now that took almost a year to create. Yeah. And it doesn't have to take that long. It was also part of the research. But <laughs> yeah. But now I can understand why you call it a symphony then because it like Oof. long, lots of time and effort and, and consideration gone into it. Yeah. Perfect. That brings us nicely to time. So Lauren, I just want to say massive thank you for joining us. I will put the links to where people can connect with Lauren and find out more about um, everything you do at The Learning Pirate in the description and the post show email as well. And other than that, just a massive thank you to everyone for joining us today as well. Yeah, thanks everyone.